Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, free markets and paid transplants. So, Richard, today we are uh, taking up an issue that you covered in one of your recent columns for Defining Ideas, the concept of creating a market for organ donations. So th there's a recent event that caused you to write about this. We'll get to that in a moment. But why don't you start by just setting the table for us? What is the current state of the law when it comes to individuals being compensated for organ donations and why is it a problem? Well, the problem can be answered in one word. There's a shortage. Right now, there are 75,000 people on the waiting list to get a kidney. Uh, the transferee, that is the person who receives the kidney, essentially gets about 20 years of life. The person who donates the kidney, whether he gets paid or not, probably takes a risk of uh, shortening a life of about 10 days. So you see that enormous gulf and some collateral damage associated with the possibility of illness, inconvenience, family dissatisfaction. Um, loss of job income and the like. So there's a huge area for gains from trade. But the statute says that you're not allowed to buy and sell organs. And since they're trying to make this a prohibition, it's not only for cash. It's for any kind of valuable consideration, a car or, or any other kind of thing, a stock of share of stock that you can do. The statute was introduced in 1984 when there were a couple of cranks out there trying to sell organs. It was bipartisan. Two names that you will still remember, one Orrin Hatch and the other Al Gore, were behind this thing. At that particular point, the ability to do transplants wasn't all that great, so the waits weren't all that long. And people kind of thought that by getting the sale element out of this, you would stop all the hucksters from taking things on. Well, shortly after this, the anti-rejection drugs, which started to get really good in the mid-80s, became very, very good. At the same time, the number of people who die catastrophic injuries in motorcycle crashes and things like that starts to go down. Uh, Health care actually gets better rather than worse, which means that enough people with kidney disease live long enough so that they actually can use a kidney transplant. So what you do is you have a zero price constraint, which means that the supply of voluntary organs is essentially limited to family transactions, mother to children and things of that sort. And the supply increases and that waiting list just gets longer and longer and longer. People go on television, they urge altruism, they sing songs, they get testimonials and none of it does the slightest bit of good until you get to the current situation. And what you need to do to understand this is to do economics 101, draw a supply curve that goes up and a demand curve that goes down, set the price at the origin and you'll see there's a huge demand and it turns out there is some altruism, which means at a zero price, you'll get a few people to donate organs, but not too many. The best example I have of this is uh, my friend Sally Sattel received a kidney from my friend Virginia Pastrell. Um, and this was done um, in complete conformity with the law between two highly accomplished women. And, you know, you'll probably have an event like that take place every year or so. But if you're talking about the thousands upon thousands of people that die, altruism is not enough, as Sally put in the title to a book on this subject, to which I contributed an essay some years ago. So the background about this is that that standard economics says that if you can open up the market 
Third parties will intervene. You'll actually get this thing to clear. The best guess is to the clearing price for an organ by the time this system is well-established and operating, somewhere between $75,000 and $100,000, say. And that's roughly the course of one year's worth of dialysis, uh, the privilege of which you get to torture yourself because it's a horrendous treatment. So a liberalization of markets in this area I think is long overdue. Okay, now explain for the audience the situation that precipitated you writing about this topic. There was an open letter from a group of academics to uh, the president and the HHS secretary, a couple others. You were asked to sign it and you opted not to. Why? Yes. What happens is there are many people I think in academics who are absolutely horrified at the needless loss of life, who are highly reluctant to endorse various kinds of market institutions. So what they did is they wrote a letter pleading that there be some form of experimentation, model programs or whatever to see if we could get this thing off the dime. But one of the sentences in that letter said, since we're so worried about equality of access, we have to reject the open market solution in favor of all these half measures. And they sent this to me uh, because I've been very active in the organ movement and on this particular issue now for a period of, I guess, 25 or 30 years since I first started to write about it. And I looked at it and I said, I am not going to sign a letter which tries to get pennies on the table if, in fact, what you do is you can see that the single major reform that holds 90% of the hope is now out of limits. So my own view about this is it would be an absolute catastrophe if this particular proposal were accepted by the president. They run some model program, discover for a variety of reasons that it doesn't work and say, see, we were right all along to do this. Uh, one of the problems about these events is that you can't experiment. In order for organ transplants to work, you need more than a donor, you need more than a donee, you need more than a doctor. You have to have a whole complicated infrastructure to broker these kinds of transactions. These things cost a lot of money to set up and nobody's going to set up in a complicated performance and program like this today if they know that the whole thing could be shut down 18 months from now or if they can only do it in one localized market. So to run experimental programs, demonstration grants and the like is to guarantee failure because if you understand the way in which these markets work, they require intermediate players to put a lot of money into sort of transactional infrastructure and that just won't happen under any government demonstration program. Let's talk about a couple of the principal objections to what you're describing here. The, the first is that when you undo the current system, which is basically charitable, you open the door to people being coerced into giving their organs. What's your response to that? Well, I think that anybody who's actually worked in this particular area realizes that the risk of coercion is, if anything, greater in a world in which cash cannot be offered. So to take the our heart-wrenching situation, you have somebody in a family who's in desperate need of a kidney, and there's six family members, and five don't match, and one does. And so all the other five members of the family say, look, your brother is going to die unless you give this particular organ. We can't pay you, but that doesn't mean we can't make your life miserable if you're prepared to let this fellow go. So do this and you create immense amounts of attention. If you then go to a market, first of all, you're offering money, which means that the level of coercion is what you lose less what you gain, but it's also to a diffuse market of people, of hundreds of people, and you can't lean on any of them. Uh, so coercion, it seems to me, is going to be out of the picture. What you then have to talk about is whether or not a form of private necessity will lead people to make organ donations against their better judgment. And I think there's several answers to this. First of all, um, when you're taking an organ, it's not like hiring household assistants of one sort or another. If that organ is bad, it will kill you. Uh, so that on the recipient side, there'll be a high degree of selectivity, just the way there is when people start hiring domestic help to take care of their children. You don't take 
the first thing that comes in the door. You actually check. That's why you need these intermediate services because they can ease the cost of search and matches. So we've seen all of this happen with respect to surrogacy. And what happens is, by and large, you don't get delinquent women becoming surrogates. You get people who have modest economic reasons or resources, but pretty pristine personal habits. Many of them are married. Many of them have already had children. Many of them are already religious in their organizations. And they will do this often on a repeat basis. Now, you can't get repeat donors, which makes this market a little bit harder. But that means that you have to work a little bit harder on the search function. But the idea that you want to take somebody who's going to kill you because you could get the organ for a cheap price is absolutely crazy. Then there's also the monetary issue. And my my view is really very simple. Everybody can afford to buy an organ. What you do is you take some of the $32 billion in change that is now used to support dialysis through public systems, give it to people, say, here's $100,000, buy your organ and keep the change, as I like to put it, and you solve the wealth problem. The kidney companies on dialysis may be a little bit sad, but everybody else should be relieved. So I don't think that the wealth objection carries much weight either against this particular proposal. So, Richard, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many people who are well-versed in economics who don't understand the inefficiencies of what you're describing. But it seems like in a lot of cases, the big objection isn't really economic. It's a sense from a lot of people that there is something objectionable in the idea of commoditizing a part of the human body, that at some ineffable level, there's something unsavory about that. What would you say to people who feel like they can't get over that hurdle? Well, actually, I would say I have exactly the same kinds of uneasiness about it, and I thought long and hard, and I realized that it was not correct. Let me explain what the source of the origin is. Generally speaking, um, the human body survives because it's able to ward off various kinds of invasions from external sources, uh, whether it's bacteria on the one hand and knives or blows on the other. Even early on when it came to surgery, you get surgical wounds. People have a natural aversion to that. And the only way you could overcome it is to give them some form of anesthesia so the natural body defenses are down. And so what you have to do is to say we perfectly well understand why it is that you think this is going to be self-destructive. But what you have to understand is that the technology has moved more fast, more rapidly than the evolutionary psychology on these kinds of issues. And if you think long and hard about this and know what the data are, you will know what the trade-offs is. For example, a live organ from a healthy donor is at least twice as valuable, maybe even more than a cadaveric kidney, which may wait around for a couple of hours before it could be transplanted and such. So keep on tomering about the positive. Talks about the way in which market institutions will actually generate protection without government intervention. Indicate that the sheer level of suffering that people have right now cannot be cured by current means. And then you could say to people, what you really have to understand is you're Reluctance is fully justified as a presumptive matter, but not as a final matter, because what you have to understand is that if we keep to your position, the amount of suffering in the world will increase, not decrease. And in fact, some of the weird defenses of organ transplantation or the prohibitions on transplantation take to such thing as a form of human dignity to learn how to die with pain. And, you know, I just find that almost grotesque, even if it's uttered with a semi-religious kind of fervor associated with it. I don't think there's anything glorious at dying at 47 um, with a terrible set of painful ends when a kidney transplant can save you for 20 or for 30 years. And so I think, in effect, when people actually put together the full calculus and use their minds about it, they will realize that you can control the abuse associated with these transactions, whether it's related to wealth or to coercion, and you can produce a huge 
huge amounts of net benefits. Put it to you this way. Um, an organ in the hands of a needy recipient is probably worth, in monetized firms, a couple of million dollars, which is not chicken feed. The cost on the other side is under 100000 not chicken feed either. If you could find a way to give some compensation so that the person at the bottom end doesn't get wiped out and you shouldn't allow them to be wiped out, you could then release gains which are magnitudes of order larger than the current situation. And it's that lost potential that should leave people so upset about the way in which this NOTA policy, which didn't make much sense in principle in 1984, but has only started to cause real damage in the last decade or so. So final question. To that point, what prospect do you see of this change actually occurring? And one of the reasons I ask this is because you presented an interesting scenario to us, which is you've said here and you said in your Hoover column as well, you can't really run these things as short-term experiments because you're not going to get a representative market. That's not going to show you how it would actually function. By the same token, we've just said this is something that at some gut level people seem uneasy with. It seems like it would make it harder, of course, if we can't show them some sort of demonstration project. So, so what do you think the the plausibility of this kind of reform happening is? Well, I'm a pessimist in terms of the descriptive stuff. Look, I have made these arguments in one form or another um, since the 1980s, and there's been only the most trivial forms of liberalization having to do with organ swaps. So it turns out that my wife needs an organ that uh, Mr. Jones can supply, and his wife needs an organ that I can supply, and they've now legalized these swaps, which would otherwise be caught by the valuable prohibition, valuable consideration prohibition. And, you know, you could work these things out and get 10 or 15 trans for a year, but you can. There's nothing else that's been liberalized, and I would say that most people in Congress they respond to the sort of initial horror that people have about this prospect, and they say it's a non-starter, so they don't think about it. So I'm not optimistic, but on the other hand. If I'm going to go down, it's going to be in flames. That is, I'm going to basically put forward what I think to be a principal position rather than seal the door totally shut by adopting a position which says that the only thing that's worked i.e. this open market type proposal is the one thing which we should not allow it. And mind you, once you put this into place, there are protections that you give to people when they're simple organ donations without consideration. You can maintain those in these kinds of a market if you wanted to do so as well. So there are sort of low-level regulation like the regulation of real estate brokers and written requirements and so forth, which are compatible with markets. I think most of them are unnecessary, but on those things, I'm always willing to bargain it away uh, because it seems to me that that if I can reduce the total prohibition to a tax of 1% of organ value, I've done an enormous amount of good, and I don't want in practice the best to be uh, the enemy of the very good indeed. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.